Speaking of chocolates, um, my daughter, who's three, uh, one of my favorite things about her are her reactions to sweets. Uh, there was this one time I was bringing her a donut, and I mean, she started smashing the table because she knew a donut was coming. Like, it was amazing. And I know as she gets older, I won't get to celebrate her reactions to food because she won't react anymore because she reaches that age when she eats with her hand over her mouth, and you get aware of all that stuff. But right now, she's not aware, and I love it. And so there was one time I decided, you know what, I hope I can capture her response to sweets. And so I had a little chocolate Reese's cup in my hand, and I walked over to her with my phone, and behold. You go, Ellie. (laughs) I mean, eyes as wide as you can get, and the, oh, chocolate. I mean, it just flowed out of her mouth, the wonder was obvious. Like, there was no, like, restraining oneself over the excitement of what she was about to see and taste. So I guess with that question, what, what do you look on with wonder? Like, do you look at people's Facebook posts with wonder? If you have to tilt your head when you're reading something you're looking at it with wonder. You're wondering, why did they put that on their wall? Why did they not just send that in a private message? Why did they do that? You tilt your head. I found that when I tilt my head, I'm often wondering why someone did something. Two of my favorite Instagram accounts are National Geographic and NASA. If you do not follow these guys, you need to, because the stuff and the photos and the things, you just, I'm baffled by them. I'm blown away by these images of the earth, space. I mean, you're just sitting there going, this is incredible. What are you wondered at? Technology? Some of you in here, technology? The newest phone. Uh, I can't wait to connect my SATA drives to my new motherboard. And I, uh, trust me, I, I speak that language. I built my computer, so I, I get baffled and wondered by Technology. What about architecture? Like buildings. Some of you freak out. I've seen some of you freak out over buildings and stained glass and the things in these buildings. You're just like going on and on about these things that you are seeing. What about that freak of nature athlete? Some of you have watched YouTube videos of five foot five white guys dunking a basketball for hours because you're like, what in the world is that? Right? I know. Dunking, white guys. I get it. Nature, sunsets, stars, outer space. What do you look at with wonder? Uh, in the last several weeks, I have begun to kind of obsess a little bit over information on the ocean. Because I think we've got all these images of space and everything, but the reality is the ocean creeps me out. Like, if you think about the ocean, okay, um, the Mariana Trench has a spot in it called Challenger Deep, and it's this, this hole in the ground that in the 1800s, a boat floated over and was trying to measure depth, and so they used a weighted line, and as this line is going to the bottom, they were able to get to about five miles deep, and they were like, this is all the rope we got. 
So they come back in, and several, and in the 1900s, a ship went to the same spot, this time having the sonar technology. They found out it's actually two miles deeper than they had originally thought. So we're looking at a hole in the ocean almost seven miles down. All right, just to give you some perspective, Mount Everest is about 26,000 feet. This hole in the ground is about 36 some odd thousand feet deep. That's taking Mount Everest, putting it at the bottom, and then stacking four Empire State Buildings on top of it and still not breaking the surface. I mean, there's stuff down there that we got no clue about. And this is seven miles away from us. You know, we're fascinated by space and thousands and thousands of miles, but there could be stuff on the bottom of the ocean we don't know about, and they're just plotting. I mean, you think about it, it's fascinating. I was reading one researcher's words on it. They were saying that we know more about the surface of Mars than we do what's at the bottom of our oceans. Um, I want to show you this video, and if you, if you love this kind of stuff, the NOAA is now live streaming a current dive for the, until July 10th, and you can live stream this trench. They are going as deep as they can, and they're just running cameras. And so they showed this, the, uh, this was just two weeks ago, they found this new breed of jellyfish, you know, and you can, you can play it. It's this crazy, like, glow, and here's why I love deep sea. I love deep sea videos because of the music they play. Like, you can just watch these things float around. I mean, this thing's crazy. They're saying they think it's about to attack, right like that. When, it's, when it, it goes like this and, and does this thing, they're saying they think it's about to attack. This is like two and a half miles down, okay? This isn't even all the way at the bottom. We're, we're two and a half miles down, okay? And then just yesterday, they released footage of this purple blob that glows and just floats through the water. And this was about three and a half miles down. And I'm sitting here going, this is insane. Thousands of people have ascended Mount Everest for have seen the bottom of the ocean. And the kicker of all of this, okay, 10% of the ocean has been mapped by us. 10%! That means Challenger Deep is the deepest hole in the ocean that we know of. <laughs> Chew on that for just a second. Don't be freaked out by space. Be freaked out by the ocean. You know, it, it does baffle me at the things we wonder over. And uh, like I said, you can go to this YouTube channel at the NOAA and, and you can watch camera angles of these unmanned subs just in the deepest depths of the ocean just looking at stuff. And it's fascinating. And what does that have to do with Psalm 119? Everything. The psalmist in this chapter speaks of wonder when it comes to the Word of God. Like, we talk about wonder over, the, over, over things and stuff and the things that we can see. Now, granted, I will say this. You and I should be more wonderstruck by things of this world. We should. Like, the fact that you have a cell phone that sends a signal to space and then it lands to somebody else like that, you should wonder about that. You should wonder about getting in an airplane. You should wonder about getting in a car. You should wonder about a lot more than you probably do. I mean, we take a lot for granted. 
But what we see in the psalmist's declaration, in, in Psalm 119 and all through the psalms, really, is this wonder of God's word. Like, he, he, he's speaking of these declarations, of these promises that he'll make to God, but then he speaks of his inability to keep his promises to God. And he's like, God, I want to do this. God, I failed at doing this, so you got to be the one that helps me do the thing that I said I wanted to do. I can't do this on my own. But your words are wonderful. Psalm 119, starting in verse 129, listen. Your laws are wonderful. No wonder I obey them. Your words are wonderful. And if you go back into the, the original language, what he's ultimately saying is that every single word that you have spoken is a miracle word. Think about that for a second. If God is who he says he is and decided to rip through time, space, matter, all the things that stand between us and him, rip through and said, hey, I'm him. I'm the one who got it all started. I created you. I've given you life. I've given you purpose. I've given you meaning. I've given you everything you need. Here I am. A miracle. Every single one of these words spoken to creation is a miracle. From the creator to the created. A miracle. And it's not just that it's his words, it's his plans, it's his deeds, it's his plan for the future, it's Genesis to Revelation, it's I made you to walk with me. And even in your rebellion and running, you can't keep me from you. I'm coming after you, and when all eternity is said and done, I will be with you. And you know how it's going to be possible? Because I'm going to come and do what has to be done in Christ on the cross. I'm going to make a way home for all of you in Christ. You can see, well, maybe we can't, because Joel talked about it last week, that the psalmist only had the Old Testament to go on. God's laws, God's declarations, God's plans. You and I have Jesus. Like we had the words that were spoken to us, but now we have this physical representation, this physical display of the Word of God lived out. All of His commands, all of His character, all of His nature, all of it wrapped up in Jesus. How much more should we look on that with wonder? But you know what we do? We get amazed by a parking space. You know, I was trying to go to that Highland church and I got a parking spot. <laughs> Wonderful! <laughs> Amazing! You know, I went to Ingalls today and I had enough sub points. My sub was free! God loves me! Wonderful! Like, like I, I, I get being, yes. But sometimes I think we just look at God's word, we look at the scriptures, we look at Jesus in the scriptures, and we just scroll through. Just like we do on the internet, just like we do on our phones. We just scroll through. But if we stop for a second and we realize creator speaking to creation, how, what, ah, I'm baffled by that. And the wonder that it causes in the psalmist's heart. And he doesn't just say, I keep your commands, you know, because they're your commands. I keep them because I've seen how amazing they are. 
I keep them because I see the life that it gives. I keep them because I see the blessings in my life when I walk with you, when I talk with you, when I journey with you. That's why I put them into practice. Totally different approach for some of us in this room who approach the Word of God as a dusty book that sits on our shelf. What if you approached it with wonder and said, God, please, please, cause my heart to wonder at your word. He continues, starting in verse 130. The teaching of your word gives light so even the simple can understand. I pant with expectation, longing for your commands. Come and show me your mercy as you do for all who love your name. Guide my steps by your word so I will not be overcome by evil. Ransom me from the oppression of evil people. Then I can obey your commandments. Look upon me with love. Teach me your decrees. Rivers of tears gush from my eyes because people disobey your instructions. God, I'm asking that by your spirit you do what only you can do this morning. And that is show us of your worth. Show us of the value of your words spoken to us. Show us of the value of your instructions, your decrees, your commands, your words. Show us the value of those things by your Holy Spirit power. You have to be the one who reveals those things to us. So I'm I'm begging this morning that you would open our eyes to the wonder that you would speak to us. It's in your name we pray. Right out of the bat, the psalmist explains that the teaching of God's word gives light so that the simple can understand it. If you go back to the original translation, there's an unfolding that happens. It's not just this light that is shining, but it's an unfolding. What wasn't there has now been given. And so when he's talking about even the simple can understand, he's not, he's not down in people who, who, who aren't smart. He's not saying the quality of someone who believes in God is they're dumber than everyone else. And that's not what he's saying. He's actually saying that those who don't know now can know. Those who didn't know that God existed and that God created them and that God gave them purpose and gave, God gave them reason for living, God gives all these things, those who had no clue and who were struggling on their own to define their work, to define their identity, to find it in everything and anything but God, he reveals and says, here it is. He's unfolded it so that humanity has a way home, giving light so that we can understand it. He says that I pant with expectation, longing for your commands. Now, as a runner, like into my neighborhood, it stinks because it's three uphills. Any way I go in, any route that I try and take, there's uphills finishing the workout. And when I'm most embarrassed is if I have just finished a run and it's uphill and I have to talk to somebody. <laughs> like if somebody in my neighborhood comes out to say hello, or are we talking? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're making a great point right there. I love, I love that we're talking right now, but I can't breathe. And if my breath doesn't come back, I'm going to die. I mean, that's it's really where you're living when you're running and you're panting. And I'm like, look, if my breath doesn't show back up, I'm going to pass out and die. That's how desperate we're seeing the psalmist is for the word of God. It's like I'm panting. And if, if you don't come and fill my lungs, I'm done. That's a longing for, a wonder at the power of the Word of God. And what it suggests is that it's very life itself in this man's life. 
Come show me your mercy. Turn my way as you do for all who love your name. Man, this is such a key for the psalmist. He's like, look, I know you love everybody. I know you love all these people, but look at me. Look at me. Look directly at me because I want to see your face. You need to see me because when you do that, mercy shows up. He said, as you do. Do you know that it is God's way to extend mercy This is what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, look, when you look on me, mercy shows up. So yeah, I'm jealous for your face. (laughs) You know, it's funny because my children, you know, when you have four of them and they're all playing in one space and they're all like, dad, look at me. I'm doing this thing. Look at me. Look at me. Daddy, look at me. Put your phone down. Look at me. You know, they just want you to look at them. You're like, I looked at you. And then they're like, I'm cool. Like they didn't really have anything to show me, but they just wanted me to see them. The same way the psalmist is saying, just look at me. Because when you look on me, mercy shows up. But then he kind of, he understands what happens as he begins to understand God's word. And in verse 133, he says, guide my steps by your word, so I will not be overcome by evil. See, the psalmist recognizes something that much of our culture has tried to get rid of. The psalmist recognizes, and you can just read all through the psalms, that there is a good and there is an evil. There is a right and there is a wrong. There is a truth and there is a lie. And our natural tendency is to be overcome by the evil. We live in a culture that says, you know what? There is no absolute truth. There's no right and there's no wrong. And I absolutely know that. And you should absolutely do what I tell you to do and believe what I tell you to believe. It's common sense, man. It's common sense to show decency to people. Well, if there's no common truth, there is no common sense. You can't have one without the other. So in a culture and in a world that's trying to strip truth, you can't have common sense. Because then I can do whatever I want. You can do whatever you want. The psalmist is saying, you have given us a defined right and wrong, truth and evil, and I need your help because my tendency is to run at what is evil and to be ensnared by it and to be trapped by it. You have to show up. You have to rescue me because I'm going to run headlong into what's not good for me. In verse 134, he says, ransom me from the oppression of evil people. Then I can obey your commandments. See, this... And if you're not careful, you will fly over the word then. But this word then is a picture of the gospel of Christ and what he has done. Because man's religion, man's ways say, look, if I will just obey your commands, then you will come and rescue me. The the psalmist is saying, I got no power to obey your commands. I'm all up in evil. You've got to come and rescue me. And when you rescue me, then I can live as you want me to. That's the gospel. The gospel is that now he has done it. He has finished it for us. Now we have the power to live as he instructs us, not the other way around. Please don't skip over then because you will miss the gospel. If you hear it, I obey your commands. Now come and rescue me. You've got man's religion. But when you hear and you declare, please come and rescue me, then I can live as you want me to. Totally different picture than what the world paints. And the psalmist, he makes sure that we are aware that people can be gripped by evil and evil people, and we need a way out. Look upon me with love, teach me your decrees, and then in verse 136, he makes a turn, not keeping it about himself, 
In verse 136, rivers of tears gush from my eyes because people disobey your instructions. They weep. There is a shift. It moves from me longing to know his commands to longing for others to know his commands. See, we have made this Christian journey so about my individual, personal, private relationship with God that we have missed the big family picture. We have missed that we were made to engage others who do not know all of the wonders of God's ways. We've made it so about us, and we've fallen into this trap of, well, it's about me. Am I getting anything out of this? Am I getting anything out of this? Well, you know what? I'm not going to go to a small group because I don't get anything out of it. It's not about you know, And then we just, we just make excuses, and we do all of these things, and we miss the point that we were created to walk with each other, encouraging each other in the ways of the wonderful ways of God. And he actually weeps. He actually weeps that there are those who don't know (coughs) the goodness of the Lord's instructions. See, weeping for those who don't know his ways is very different than standing on a street corner and yelling at people. It's very different than shoving a finger in somebody's face. But do you even weep for people who do not know his ways in the privates of your home, of your living room? in your closet when you're praying? Do you weep for anyone that is far from him? Do you? I think we should. I, be, I really do believe that if the church wept more, it would change our posture. It would change the way we interact with people who may or may not know him. It would change how we would interact with each other because we'd allow the Lord to soften our hearts so that we would see that the people who are, we are weeping over truly are missing the life that God made them to live. You know, we do weep. We weep over sin. We weep over the fact that people are missing out on the life God gave, God, God came to give us now. We weep over the consequences of sin. We weep over the weight and guilt that they are still walking with. We weep over the fact that, that and you guys, you've seen it. You've seen people try and fill their lives with things hoping to be satisfied, and they're never satisfied. We weep over the fact that they would just, they would just look at Jesus. And they would just look at him. But we know they don't. And so they keep running after everything and anything else to find satisfaction, hope, rest, joy, all the things that God meets with himself. We weep when people don't see the wonders of his ways. George W. Truett said it this way, to know the will of God is the greatest knowledge. To find the will of God is the greatest discovery And to do the will of God is the greatest achievement. If this is true, then why would we keep it to ourselves? Why would we keep this about us? Why wouldn't we be looking over our shoulder at the next generation? Why wouldn't we be looking at people in our neighborhood and praying in our neighborhood, at least praying in our neighborhood, at least praying as we walk, as we live, as we're at work, as we're playing? Why wouldn't we want and long for people to know the wonderful ways of the Lord? See, this is very different in the way Paul um, declares what we are responsible for. He, he describes it in this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, and all of this, and he, all of this is the rescue of God. All of this is the, the relationship with God. All of this is what he has done, what he has accomplished. All of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. 
For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, bringing, the, bringing it back together, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Pleading is very different than pointing fingers. See, if it, and I know for some of you, you may have experienced that rebellious child who runs out the door who runs out the door and then they run after everything. And I know we have moms in here and dads in here who have prayed for kids who just seem to run after the things of this world. And there's two approaches that you can take. And both of them have their place and both of them have their time. And, you know, there's the first one, you get back in this house. You get back in here. Get back in the house. Get. There's that way. But there's also the Please come home. Please come home. Please come home. You see, what Paul is saying is we are begging people to come home through Christ. What Paul is saying is that we are we are not keeping ourselves together. We are not keeping ourselves and our faces all shiny. We are weeping and we are begging people to experience the life they were made to experience through Christ. Very different picture than the posture the church may have taken in the last 50 years. What if we wept for those who don't know his ways? What if we wept and we were concerned enough to go, you know what, if this is true, if the gospel is really true, then that means it's for others as well. You know, um, for those of you that may be familiar with church history, you, you know who Augustine is. And uh, between the years 300 and 400, um, Augustine was a, a, a young man born into a nominal Christian culture, uh, the Roman transition to Christianity had already happened, and so basically Christianity was this cool pop thing to do, and so you have nominal Christians, very much like today. And Augustine grew up with a, a nominal Christian father who really could have cared less about Jesus, about the gospel, but he had a mother who was a praying mother, Monica, and she gets talked about quite a bit. And at about 16 years old, uh, Augustine was seen as a brilliant mind. And so his dad starts trying to get him to go off to these schools so he can be instructed by the most brilliant people in the world. And Augustine, in his own, in his own words, and I would encourage you, if you've never read the Confessions, you need to grab a modern-day translation, and you need to read about this, this saint who comes from a playboy's lifestyle. I mean, because he's super honest in here, and the Confessions and the wordings and the way he writes is just brilliant. But you're seeing someone's journey to conversion, to coming to know Christ. And this is why this book confuses so many people. They're like, what am I reading here? I thought this guy was a Christian, you know? But he's talking about his desires and, and the flesh and the pleasures of this world. And he struggled against these things. And so 16 years old, labeled brilliant, gets tired of the church, bored of the church. The girls weren't interesting to him enough at the church. He says that. 
And so he goes after all pleasures that he possibly can with no regard to truth, gospel, anything. He runs headlong into them. So by the time he's 18 years old, he's gotten a girl pregnant. He's living with her. I mean, this is 300, 400 AD. This is not 20 years ago. Same struggles, y'all. And so at 18 years old, he's, he's, he's really begun to wrestle with the desires that he has. And he's like, man, this is just not good. I can't get any control over it. So he dives headlong into this intellectual cult. And they just, he starts trying to go, well, my wisdom and my smarts, they will overcome my evil desires. And I will have a way out. I can get out of this on my own. And he begins to see the holes in their philosophies and their understandings. And all these guys talked about how smart they were and how moral they could be, but he knew their lives and he knew how immoral they really were. And what's what, it, interesting turn of events, he ends up having to go back home. And his mother, because of the way he was living, almost said, I'm not letting him back in. And it was because of a pastor's involvement in their life, he said to his mother, he said to Monica, the tears over a child will not be ineffective. And, and, and she was like, okay, I, I need to show him grace. So he moves back in, kind of starts to get a little, little, you know, uh, I got to get out. And so Rome starts calling and his mom's like, well, he's going to get himself in more trouble if he goes, so I'm going to go with him. And he's like, cool, mom, you'll come with me. And he tells her a time to show up at the dock to catch the boat. He actually tells her the wrong time, and she shows up later, and he's already left, and she weeps, just breaks down at the dock. It's this whole dramatic story. But little did she know that the Lord was going to answer her prayers. She prayed a prayer pretty regularly for her son, and that word, the words were, Lord, please bring someone to my son who can lead him to heaven. She never stopped praying. She never stopped praying. And Augustine, while he is there, is learning under the greatest minds. He sees the gaps in this cult that he's in. He's just like, I got to get out of here. He meets a man named Ambrose. And Ambrose is a, a former lawyer and orator who could speak like nobody. And Augustine sits under his teaching. He still thinks Christianity is infantile. He's like, this is, this is lame. This is weak. But the combination of gospel presentation and the worship music began to stir him, began to affect him. He began to read Paul's words of, it is by grace through faith you have been saved. It's not something you can boast about. You can't do this. You can't save yourself. And he was actually, at 33 years old, the description is, he was knocked over by grace in a garden. The description is that he fell on his back because he was bowled over by the grace of God. Augustine later writes, and I think I have this for you guys to read. He says, The will prays. It does not promise. It confesses. It does not declare itself. It begs for fullest liberty. It does not boast of its own power. It is not everyone who trusts in his own strength, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, the beauty of this psalmist is that he's not standing there going, God, I'm going to do everything for you. Wait, I can't. You need to help me do these things. Augustine understood this declaration that I got no power over this, these evils and these desires and this flesh and this addiction and all this stuff. I cannot break it on my own. I am confessing that. Lord, please come bring the rescue. And it's when we experience his rescue that we begin to weep for those who are like, man, I just wish you would look at Jesus. As the band comes and closes this morning, I wanted to end a little differently than we normally do. 
You know, one of my favorite gospel imagery films out there, and I know this may sound weird and I may lose credit with some of you, and that's fine, but it's the movie Taken. And in this movie, you have a know-it-all daughter who thinks she knows everything with a father who's ex-military, and he really does know everything. <laughs> and she says to her father, I'm going to go, I want to go to Europe, I want to do the travel thing, and I want to do all this stuff. And the dad's like, um, No. And she says, well, I'm going to go anyways. And so she does. And if you know the story, she gets caught up in a trafficking ring and is, is kidnapped. And that's the infamous phone calls where Liam Neeson's like, you know, I don't know where you are, but I'm going to find you. <laughs> and I know, obviously, there's imagery in it, and I, so I don't want to recommend it. But I, have been, I was baffled by the connection to the gospel that it really was because the Lord didn't stay on the porch to rescue his people. He actually got off the porch and ran after those returning. And the picture we see in this movie is this father in this last scene who shows up, his daughter in this terrible situation. Father takes care of business and she looks at him and says, you came for me? And he says, I told you I would. You know, as a dad who has four children, putting myself in the predicament of going, man, what if? What if they run and go the other direction? Will I be someone who weeps and extends that grace and mercy? Will I be that person who runs after and never gives up? And so this morning, like I said, I wanted to end a little differently. But you in this room, I bet you have someone in your mind who does not love the ways of the Lord. And maybe you have privately been weeping over them. And maybe you would say this morning, I'd really love somebody to go to battle on behalf of me, with me for this person. So if you have somebody in your life right now that you are going to battle for and asking the Lord to bring them home through Christ, would you just stand? I know it kind of it might be weird, but would you just stand? And we're not going to do anything crazy, I promise. But if, you've, if there's someone that's coming to your mind right now, here's what I want to do. I want the body of Christ to be the body of Christ. And if you're around these people, you don't even know their story, but you can go and put a hand on them. So if you're around them, go, go, go put a hand on them right now. Because we're going to pray. You don't even have to know that person's name, but you can pray for them. And say, I'll go to bat with you. I will pray that these people find their way home in Christ. So I want you right now, and you don't have to do it out loud if you don't want to. You can just stand there and just silently stand next to them. and Say, Lord, I'm praying for whoever they're thinking of. Would you go to battle? Would you go to work and would you bring them home? So take some time right now. Just do that.
Father, we are just asking on behalf of those in this room who have wept, on behalf of those who do not know of your wonderful ways. They're running from you, they're avoiding you, but God, we, are, we know you're the pursuer of hearts. And so we are coming alongside those in this room who are walking this very lonely battle at many times. And I pray even now that those faces that are coming to mind for those in this room, you would begin, you would continue actually, continue your work. But Lord, that they would come home through Christ. And I pray, Lord, for, for the ability for these in this room to not put their identity in, in whether they, they, they say the right thing or do the right thing, but they would just know how to weep for their friend and they would weep for their child and that, that would cause a compassion, a desire to, to figure out how to, to just sit and let you work. But Lord, if it means extending a hand, if it means do, going the extra mile, whatever, Lord, you are the one who gives the ideas. But as the church, we're just coming together and saying, we believe that you rescue. Would you do it again? And as we close this morning in worship, there's a couple of prayers that maybe you might want to join in praying. There's a couple of prayers that maybe your heart needs to say of the Lord, ask of the Lord. Maybe you desire Him to open your eyes to the wonder of His Word. Maybe you've seen it as just this dusty, boring book. Maybe you need Him to revive your heart. Maybe you need to ask Him to help you understand the things in the Scripture that you don't understand. No longer letting it be a roadblock, but if God is who He says He is, He can explain it so we can understand. And lastly, maybe you need to begin to turn outward and weep for others. Maybe you need to begin to stop considering it's all about you and how are you going to invest and weep for those who don't know you, who don't know of the wonderful ways of the Lord. And so as we close in worship this morning, you can sing, declare, pray, but don't not do anything. Don't ignore Him. Don't harden your heart's unbelief. Let the Lord do, move and work. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray.